Um, we're going to talk about, so we're going we're gonna to leave the Gospel of John for a while. So now I cannot guarantee that will be done in 2011. Um, but today, I'm going to, I, I think the Lord has put on my heart to kind of go in this direction. And it's not going to be a feel-good sermon. And I don't apologize for that because I've been really wrestling with what we're going to be talking about. And so I like to pass on the savings to all of you so you can wrestle with the things that I wrestle with. Um, and, and so, yeah, so those people who pray for me as I, as I teach up here, as I preach, ramp it up because um, I'm going to need your prayer. So we're just going to, we're just going to get going. I'm going to, you know what, I think I'll pray first and then we'll start. God, we want to thank you for your grace and your mercy and the blessings that you give us. And Lord, we, we're on, we're on the, the cusp of something very cool. And, and I just sense it in my very being that, that, that God, you want to move. And not just here in our church, but, but you're just ready to, to move everywhere. And we want to be a part of that. And so I pray that as we venture into your word this morning, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to dig deep into our very souls, right into our hearts. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart is acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, Psalm 103, here we go. There's not really a place I can stand without offending, but okay. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all, who, for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And so here are the words of David spilling out his heart. And he's speaking, he's speaking about or to his soul, that inmost part of himself, that part where, where nobody else can really get into. And he's telling his soul, praise the Lord. Remember all of the things that he has done for you. And he goes right to the forgiveness of sin. Because it's the forgiveness of sin in David's mind. It's the logical place to start because the, the, that sin is the thing that keeps all good things from the Lord from us. But he says the Lord forgives sins. And he will, he will restore us. It's, it's, it's God's pleasure. And he's willing and he's able to forgive anything you have done in your life. He is willing to forgive everything you have done in your life. And we're to praise the Lord from the depths of our soul because of the forgiveness of God. And he heals our disease. Sin in and of itself, is, it's a disease to our very soul. It sickens our spirits. But when, but when forgiveness takes place, it's 
Sanctification begins to take place. And sanctification begins to take place because we have come to a place of repentance. And it's in that place and it's through that process that God spills out his grace and his mercy. And he forgives our sin and heals the disease of our soul. You see, our crime is a capital offense. And our disease is terminal. But it's the goodness of the Lord that will cure us from both. And then he says, he rescues us from the pit. Maybe, maybe some of you know what that's like. Maybe some of you have experienced God reaching down into the pit and lifting you up. Maybe that's how you came to know who Jesus was. You were in the bottom of the pit. You decided to quit digging and turn your life over to the Lord. And he rescued you from the pit. I mean, that's my story. That's how God got a hold of me. And maybe that resonates with some of you. But I can tell you, I have lived that verse. I have experienced that verse in the goodness of God. And then David, he, he sees the crown of love the crown of compassion. I mean, is there anything worth more in this life than a, than a soul that has been rescued from itself? Rescued from itself into the favor of God by God himself. And then he tells his soul that he has satisfied your desires. It's good things. There's something I'm learning on this journey I continue, continually am reminded of and I'm continually learning that it is only God that could fulfill the desire of my heart and of my soul. I mean, all of these external things that we get, it's, you know, humanity is going to disappoint you. People are going to let you down. Stuff wears out and it breaks. And just when you buy the newest thing, the next newest thing comes out and you're stuck with the old one almost instantaneously. But, but the, those things in our heart and those things in our soul, that they're desires that sometimes we can't even speak. It's only the Lord that can fulfill those desires and that can fill that place in your heart. That deep, deep desire. And it says he has compassion. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in love. I mean, doesn't that just feel good? I am so glad. I am so glad that, that the Lord is not patient with me like I am patient with other people. Because I would be in trouble and I think I'm in good company when I say that, that the Lord doesn't treat us the way we treat other people. But he's slow to anger. He loves us, compassionate. And David says, remember those things, my soul. When, when it's just, when it seems like it's falling apart, remember the Lord your God. And then I love verse 10. He does not treat us as our sin deserves or repay what we deserve. That's, that's good news right there, man. That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. His pleasure to forgive. God does not forgive you begrudgingly. He's not like, fine, you messed up again. I guess I'll forgive you again. 
man, he's just standing there with his arms open, just waiting to forgive you, waiting to hear those words, I'm sorry, waiting for you to turn and walk to him. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. That's, that's, that's good news. You see this whole, this whole text, man, this, this points right to Jesus, right to the person of Jesus Christ. And I know the entire Bible points to Christ. Old and New Testament, it's all, it's all pointing us to who Jesus is. But man, it's just so obvious here that these are the things that Jesus is bringing to the believer's life. But then, then David says something in the next couple verses that, that weighs a little different on my soul, that weighs a little different in my spirit. He says it twice. Oh, let's just, let's go there. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So within this amazing psalm of praise for all that God has done for David, he's, rem- he's reminding his soul, remember the good things of the Lord. Remember what, what he has done. And then there's these two little phrases in here that, that just kind of change things for me a little bit. And I think, I think we, we tend to gloss over them because they don't feel good and they don't fit nice. And, and maybe, maybe we just explain them away. We water them down into something that's very manageable and acceptable for us. So we don't really have to deal with it. And it's the idea of fear the Lord. that God has great love for those who fear him. He has compassion on those who fear him. This idea is very common in the Old Testament. We see it over and over and over again. And church, as I have meditated through this and I have been working through this um, long before that I've decided to, to actually teach on this and, and I believe we've lost the fear of the Lord. I believe as, as a church, I don't mean just us. I mean, as, as a church, we've lost the fear of the Lord. And we've, we've watered down God to just, just our friend. You know, Jesus is our homeboy. I get that. That's, that's cool. But we've, we've, made, we've made him something that's very controllable and very easy on the eyes and, you know, easy on the hearts. We've, we've, taken, we've taken the creator of the universe and we've put him in a box and we've tried to make him very safe and very manageable. But that's not the God that I read about in the Bible. That's, that's not the way I read this, this whole thing. No person can control him. No person can define who he is. No person can decide that God isn't a threatening God. Because if, you, if you've gone there, then you've never read the Bible. I think we've lost the fear of the Lord. I think we've done it corporately. We've done it individually. And I can't help but to believe that this, that this fearlessness we have of God 
contributes to just, I don't know, maybe moral flabbiness is a good word. Okay, maybe not. Or, or just, just an ineffective witness of, of, of who Christ is. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's the reason why many believers lead lives of just lukewarm faith. They've lost the fear of the Lord. You know, that term, the fear of the Lord, appears like 20 times in the Old Testament. And to fear God or to fear the Lord, it's like it's over 30, 30 times. But, you know, we don't, we don't like to focus on that. We like, we like the love verses and the mercy verses and the grace verses. Those just feel much better, don't they? To talk about the love of God and the mercy of God and the graciousness of God. Those are all part of who he is. But we cannot escape the verses that talk about the fear of the Lord. Look at a few. Deuteronomy 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Joshua. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And then in Psalms. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. And this is, again, this is just a few places where it talks about the fear of the Lord. It talks about fearing God. Now, the word fear in the Hebrew is yare. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So any Hebrew scholars? Excellent. I pronounced that correctly. So you need to learn it that way. And, and it, means, it means to be afraid. And we all know what to be afraid is. We have been afraid of things in our lives. So we, we understand afraid. But also means to have reverence for or to revere and see we don't like to the the to be afraid part we shouldn't be afraid of god because that doesn't fit with 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 the with the new testament thing but you know i'm to be afraid of god really no no no. i like the reverence part that's much better isn't it to revere god the word revere or to have reverence for means to honor or respect i would say that we honor we honor God. I mean, we're human and we're fallible and we mess up. I get that. But, but we, we try our best to honor who God is, right? I mean, we don't take the Lord's name in vain unless we're in our car by ourselves, right? And, and, I, and I get that. And just a side note, I think we have a completely misunderstanding of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It's not just that swear that you get mad at people for saying, but that's a teaching for a different time. But, but anyway, we, we try to honor God and, and we try to respect him, right? I mean, we're Christ followers, right? And there's a certain amount of honor and there's a certain amount of respect. But you know who else we honor and respect? Grandparents. Grandparents are honored and respected leaders. Whether it be leaders of a church or, or even your boss, if he's a good boss, you honor. There's, there's respect there, right? So my question is, do we treat God? Do we honor God and respect God the same way we would honor and respect our grandparents, our boss? Or maybe, maybe you've heard that the fear of the Lord is this, this place of awe. You know, okay, maybe reverence isn't strong enough and we don't like the fear part, but awe, that sounds much better, doesn't it? I would say that we have no idea, or, we, or maybe, maybe I should say it this way. We are in awe 
of things we shouldn't really be in awe of. I mean, from, from looking at a little baby and going, aww, to, I mean, I'm in awe of Stevie Ray Vaughan's song, Scuttle Button. Have you ever heard that song? That's an amazing rip-your-face-off guitar song. I'm just like, wow. I mean, I'm just like blown away by that. Or have you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked out? I mean, that's, that's awe. I've stood at, uh, in Prague, in the center of Prague, and looked at the castle of Prague. And man, I'm going to tell you what, that stirs feelings of just, wow. I mean, there's no words to think that this is built in the 1600s. So tall, what rocks the size of this room. And they didn't have cranes and things like we have. So you're just standing like, like, wow. And so I don't think we really, I mean, we just throw out awe all the time. I'm in awe, I'm in awe, I'm in awe. And I don't believe we have a good understanding of it. The, the word or the emotion, awe, is made up of, of different things. It's made up of first, um, where is it? Where am I? I just kind of just blew through everything here. It's made up of veneration. It's made up of, of um, um, honor. And it's made up of dread. You see, we, we got the honor thing. We got the veneration thing, but dread? Really? Nobody wants to dread God. Dread's just, that's an ugly word, man. That doesn't, that doesn't fit well with me. That doesn't serve my purpose well. But that's what the true definition of being in awe of something is. And you know, this idea of fear of the Lord is important for each one of us to understand in order that we are in right relationship with God. Psalm 111 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so unless we understand the fear of the Lord, we cannot fully understand who God is, how to live for him. We cannot be in right relationship with him unless we begin to get this idea of what it means to fear the Lord. So what does it mean? Does it mean that you should tremble and quake and be afraid of him? Maybe. Maybe some of, you, some of us need that. John Piper, John Piper defines it this way. That the fear of the Lord is in our lives, in our hearts, God is so powerful and so holy and so amazing that we would not dare run from him, but all that we can do is run to him. And he would go on to say that this is not something that we add to keeping our covenant with him. This is the covenant. That we would come to, this is how we come to him. This is how we come to Jesus. We come to him with, with reverence and awe and humility, and brokenness. The fear of the Lord is this this thing in our lives that we would tremble, that we would tremble at the thought of walking outside of his harmonies, That that we would tremble at the thought of walking outside of his commands. And do you see that this is not just a behavioral, a behavioral thing. This is about the condition of your hearts that you would tremble to think that you are about to make a wrong decision and you know it's wrong, but you're going to do it anyway because whatever reason you want to throw out there. I'm afraid that there's too many people 
that call themselves followers of Christ, that do not fear their departure from the ways of God. And we are arrogant. We are arrogant to use grace as an excuse, mercy as a crutch, and to take his love for granted. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And sometimes, sometimes I don't even really fully understand what it means to be humble. I mean, how do, how do you come to Jesus in all humility? The opposite of humility, I think, is entitlement. And I have to say that I know I suffer from entitlement. I'm sure some of you suffer from entitlement. You know, it's that feeling that, you know, something is owed to me. You owe me, whatever that is. It could be you owe me respect. You owe me, you owe me that raise. You owe me a certain way of treatment. I deserve that, and I deserve this. And so maybe I'm just going to take it because I deserve it. That's, that's entitlement. But in the, the reality of it is the only thing in God's eyes that we are entitled to is eternal separation from him. But instead, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have been given the gift of eternal life. But we walk like we're entitled to everything and anything. I, I've, I've been just been wrestling with myself like all this week. I'm just like, oh, what, what is wrong with me? And, and I'm almost embarrassed at some of the things that God showed me. And, and I just, really? I'm like that? Man, I pray that other people didn't see that because so we walk with this sense of entitlement. You know, if you were to stand next to a world leader, I don't know, if you had the opportunity to meet uh, Martin Luther King Jr., or if you got to stand next to Gandhi, or some just some great leader, whether it be a leader of a country or a leader of faith, you would stand there in a certain amount of, of, of awe and respect and reverence. I mean, people like that just, just garnish that. But what if you stood next to somebody who had every right to kill you because of the things that you have done? And they were justified in killing you. In fact, you deserve to be dead. But they chose to forgive you, not because you did anything, but because they put the blame on their own son. And now you have been given the right to live. Wouldn't you stand next to that person with a little bit different of a level of reverence and awe and fear? And so it is with, with God. This is, this is not being afraid to come to God. This is just giving to God treating him just the way he should be treated, that you would fear running from him. And the only thing you could do was run to him. Now, I don't know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, Dennis, that whole fear of the Lord stuff, for real? That's like Old Testament stuff. I mean, those pages still have the gold on them in my Bible. I mean, I wear out the, the New Testament over here. I mean, that's, 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 that's Old Testament stuff. Today, we have the white American Jesus, peace, love, and he's got the 
piercing blue eyes. He's got the well-cropped beard, better than mine. And I have the Al Borland beard trimmer. But, you know, Jesus has got it. He's got it going on. He's got the product in his hair. He's looking. That's the Jesus that, that I like. That's the Jesus that's comfortable. That, that fear of the Lord, stuff, man, that's, that's Old Testament. I say, nay, nay. Philippians 2, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, tremble doesn't come with respect. There's something else going on here. Fear and trembling. Matthew, these are the words of Jesus. He tell, he's telling his disciples, do not be afraid of those who kill, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And this, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? The axe, right? So, so they sell some land and they bring the money to the disciples. And the disciples says, is this all of it? And Ananias says, yup, he kept a little back. He got busted in a lie. Guess what happened to him? He dropped dead. Boom. His wife comes in and says, yo, hey, you sure you're up, squared up with us? She said, uh-huh. Boom. She drops, by the power of God, she drops dead. And this is what it says in, chapter, in verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let me tell you something. If Don walked up here and lied to me and dropped dead, there's going to be a certain amount of real, actual fear in my heart. And it's going to bring respect. It's going to bring honor. It's going to bring awe to a completely different level. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Think you've lost fear of the Lord. The only thing that you can do is run to him, not from him. In the next chapter nine, it says this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. And so the, the backdrop of the story is Paul is traveling around and he's just growing bolder and bolder in the spirit of God. And he's just, he is just refuting everyone and, and proving from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And at the end of the section, he talks about, he talks about the church, capital C, not just a single church, but the church. And they, they were enjoying a time of peace, of the shalom of God, and they were being strengthened. Why? Because They were living in the fear of the Lord and they were being encouraged by the Holy Spirit. They knew what was important and they kept what was important first and foremost in their lives. And for for us, church, we need to get back to what is important. We would have to bring ourselves to a place of just, man, just getting rid of all that junk that pushes and prods and pulls us away from following the Lord, the Lord our God.
Last week we spent time, it was only 15 minutes, engaging the Holy Spirit. We put that text in there and I said, read this and think about it. Let the Spirit speak to you. And so we, we spent time praying and waiting, listening. And I hope, that, I hope that you left here and you got a word from the Lord that day and that you engaged that word throughout the course of the day. And I hope that that wasn't just the, the last time you did that. Because if, if you're doing that once in a while, you're starving your soul for the good things of the Lord. You're starving yourself. And so now I want to challenge us to come back to living, to living our lives individually and corporately in the fear of the Lord. This is not a condition of our hearts. I think, I think it's okay to be a little nervous of the creator of all things that can instantaneously end everything as we know it. But because of the love that he has for us, because of his son Jesus who paid the price on the cross, he chooses not to. Doesn't that deserve much more awe, respect, honor, fear, dread than, say, your grandparents who are just human or world leaders who are just just human beings. We're talking about God. And I believe this, this is going to bring peace to our community, the shalom of God. I believe this is going to strengthen individuals in our church. And you see, this is the perfect time to begin this. Because on Wednesday, coming Wednesday, March 9th, is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent, the 44 days of Lent. I know some of you said, I thought it was, I thought it was 40 days. Oh, you're wrong. For some reason, we don't count the Sundays. So it's actually 44 days. But we'll just go with the 40 if it makes you feel better. And it starts on Wednesday the 9th, and it goes all the way to Monday, Holy Thursday, whatever you want to call it, which is right before Good Friday, which precedes... Uh, Holy Saturday, and then we bounce into Easter Sunday. See the way that all fits very nicely? And so this is a time on the Christian calendar of a time of fasting. It's a time of self-denial, spiritual growth. It's a time, it's a time of repentance. It's a time to get back to the simplicity of faith following the Lord. I want us to open ourselves up to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want us to open ourselves up to walking in that fear of the Lord that the Bible talks about over and over again. You know, Lent is almost like this time of spiritual house cleaning. Get rid of all the junk that hinders our communal relationship with Jesus and our individual relationship with Jesus. Just just begin to just purge and get rid of it all because those things mean nothing. They're not important. If it doesn't bring you closer to your God, it's a waste of your time. And I don't mean that you're just, you're just laying around in ashes and sackcloth and you're just rocking back and forth. No, no, no. I mean, I mean the, the things in your life, are they pulling you away from him? Are they allowing you to enjoy him more and bringing you closer to him? 
If it's pulling you away, it's garbage. It's worthless. Get rid of it. I like and I love the way Catholicism handles Ash Wednesday. Because they go and they put ashes on their head. I know it looks a little dorky when they get back to work after lunchtime and people are like, but you know what? It's a symbol. It's a symbol of repentance. It's a symbol that they have a desire to return to the Lord their God. Now we can argue dogma, doctrine, theology, all that. Let me tell you, we all have idols in our life and and let's not point fingers. But there's, there's something deeply reverent about that time and that day that they would go and they would make a public profession of faith. Are you willing to look a little dorky for your faith once in a while? Not many of us are. Can't wait till next year when we have Ash Wednesday service at our new church and we come to a place of repentance. So this season, I want us, I want to challenge us to spend the next 40 days returning to the Lord our God in repentance. I want to I want to challenge us to begin to walk in the fear of the Lord and to begin to engage the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want us as a community to focus on four areas during this time of Lent. Four things that are going to strengthen us, that are going to just shed all of that junk away from us. Four things that the Lord calls us to do, I believe. And the first, it's fasting, it's prayer, it's charity, and it's scripture reading. So during the next 40 days. Now, fasting historically is this time where you go without food. And you go without food for a spiritual purpose, for a spiritual reason, that you would focus yourself during that time of fasting more on the things of God. Now, fasting without a spiritual focus, that's called a diet. We're not looking for people to diet. We're looking for people to begin to fast that they can begin to shed those things that are hindering their walk with God. Now, you can also fast from other things besides food. You can fast from things that pull you away. It could be TV. It could be your schedule. It could be you're too busy. It could be that hobby that has now turned into an obsession of yours. You know what? Get off Facebook, shut down Farmville, right? Angry birds will be there when you get back that you can get rid of those things and focus more on the things of the Lord. Even, even a meal. We, again, we don't want people to diet. But if you're willing to, to give up a, a meal or two, that you would focus in prayer, meditate, begin to seek the Lord while he, stay, while he could be found. I want us to take this, this time of Lent and fast and pray. If you're going to give something up, ask yourself why you're doing it. There has to be a reason. If you're you're giving up chocolate, ask why you're giving up chocolate. Is it because you spend too too much money on chocolate and your girlish figure is just going to, you know, it's going out the door and you want to make sure? No, no, no. See, See, you're missing the point. Don't give up something just for the sake of giving it up. But if chocolate has somehow in some way pulling you distracting you, distracting you from the things of God, then please give up chocolate. 
I think you'd eat a lot of chocolate if that's the case. But anyway, I mean, but you get my point. Just don't give up something to give up something. Give up something you can focus on your relationship with the Lord. And I'm going to ask you all that as we move through Lent, that you would take every Wednesday, beginning on Ash Wednesday, and you would fast on that day. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go the whole day, but you would, you would skip a meal. Instead of eating during that time, you would, you would pray. You would, you would read the Bible. You would read something in the lines, something, that's, something spiritual, something that awakens your soul. And unless you have a medical reason why you can't fast, I'm asking you to fast. Now, a medical reason is not, I get crabby when I fast. That is not a medical reason, okay? I get, I get a little lightheaded. You know what? We consume more calories at breakfast than most of the world consumes for days. You can go without a meal. Again, if you cannot, if you are on some type of medication or you have some type of condition, please do not feel at all um, less or, or, or down on yourself because you can't. You could. And your medical condition is, I get crabby, ain't nobody going to be around me. Please, seek the Lord while he can be found. And I want us to focus on prayer during this time of Lent. And not just, I want us to take chunks of time in your personal life and pray. And this is not just going through your lists. But pray. And I know maybe you're thinking, man, I don't have chunks of time. I can't afford that. I'm telling you, you can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. And this is not just, again, going through your list of, of things to pray for. And believe me, that's good because I know I'm on some of your lists. So please don't stop praying for me. Please. But I'm talking about seeking God asking him, show me, Lord, where my heart has hardened. Show me where I have walked away from you. Strengthen me. Let it be, let it be a time of, of repentance. Maybe, maybe during this time you pray one of the seven psalms of repentance. And, and here, look, I even made it easy for you. Here they are. You can write those down. Take one of those a day and pray through them like we did last week, and just, just let those words sink into your soul and let God show you where it is he needs to work in your heart, where you've walked away, where you've become hardened, where you've made something ultimate in your life instead of him. I want us to focus on this idea of charity. The best way to remove a vice is to cultivate a virtue. I'll say that again. The best way to remove a vice is to cultivate a virtue. Take some time. Examine your life. See where it is you are being selfish. And you know what? This is not just about money. Unless that's where you're being selfish. But this is not just about money. This is getting our eyes off of ourselves and looking at other people and helping them. This is about friends and family and coworkers and those people that aggravate you. This is about perfect strangers. I'm asking you to do things for people that have no physical, emotional, financial benefit to you at all. That you would serve in ways that actually cost you something. 
and see what the Lord begins to do in your heart. And last but not least, read the Bible. Let me say it this way. Read the Bible. And, and maybe on this side, you didn't really understand that, so let me, let me twist it for you this way. Read the Bible. Are, are we clear on that? It's, it's, it's kind of three words. I just want to make sure. Read the Bible. When Jesus was in the desert praying and fasting, and Satan himself came to him and tempted him, he did not throw out some, some pithy Christian sayings. He quoted scripture and he silenced Satan himself. Read the Bible. Just pick it up. Read it. When you're going for Sports Illustrated, read the Bible. When you're going for that Stephen King novel, read the Bible. Time Magazine, read the Bible. CCM, you just throw that in the garbage, man. Just read the Bible. Some of you'll get that later. It's okay. I am convinced all of my heart that if we begin to return to the Lord, if we begin to cultivate in our hearts reverence and awe and a fear of the Lord, we begin to open ourselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God is going to do some amazing, amazing things here. And I guarantee you that if you, if you engage these disciplines, God's going to show you stuff and he's going to be tugging at you and he's going to be pulling at you and he's going to show you things he wants you to get rid of. He's going to show you things he wants you just to turn over and drop, but he's also going to give you things. He's going to give you blessing. He's going to give you freedom. He's going to give you a lightness in your heart that, that you're just not going to understand. This is the promise of our God. And so what else can he do but to keep his promises? I want to leave you with this last verse out of, the, out of Joel. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading out across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. Do you see that? Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. That means don't tear your clothes to make it look like you're returning to the Lord, but let the work take place deep down inside. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep 
between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Why do people say among the peoples, where is their God? There was a time in history where Christians were known for their fear of the Lord and they wore that proud mantle and banner because they would submit to the Lord their God. Not just in a a mockery, not just in in tradition, not just in in words, but, but, but their heart was in submission to the Lord their God. Let's seek the Lord while he can be found. And as he begins to show you and reveal things to you, this is all going to, this whole journey for, uh, during Lent for us is going to culminate on Good Friday with a Good Friday service. And maybe during that service, you want to nail something to the cross that we're going to have there. Maybe you want to leave it at the foot of the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, it's going to be gone. Because our God is a God of new life. Our God is a God of new beginnings. Our God is a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy for those who will walk in fear of him. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for wandering away. Forgive us for using your grace as an excuse. Forgive us for taking your love for granted. Lord, strengthen us to return our lives to you. Teach us, each one of us, what it means to walk and to live in the fear of the Lord. Encourage us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we begin this journey through Lent, pray, God, that we would not waste it. Pray that we would hunker down. And it's not just for 40 days, but this This is a changing point for all of us. This is a new beginning to walk in the ways of the Lord. That we would look to please you only. That we would look to worship you only. That we would look to you for 
more strength, more purpose, more meaning. Amen.